Hello everyone and welcome to the Rising Sea Voices podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Here you will discover and learn from the new generation of coastal, estuarine and ocean scientist engineer. My name is Felicia Almeta Scholt and I am the Rising Sea Voices host. I've got a very special episode for you today. But first, I would like to offer a land acknowledgement. I live and work in Vancouver, Washington. This land has been cared for and called home by the Chinook Indian Nation, the Kaolitz Indian tribe, and the Chinookan, Tainapam, and Kikitat people sometime immemorial. In the 1800s, the Tainapam Indians were relocated to the Kaolitz Reservation, where the descendants still live today, while many of the present-day descendants of the Kikitat people are part of the Yakama Nation. The land where I live holds great historical, spiritual, and personal significance for its original stewards. However, there is still no federal acknowledgement of the Chinook as an Indian tribe, and the Kaolitz Indian tribe had to wait until 2000 to be officially recognized by the federal government. I recognize and continually support and advocate for the sovereignty of the native nations in this territory and beyond. Despite centuries of colonial theft and violence, this is still indigenous land. It will always be indigenous land. Indigenous people are not relics of the past, and their talents and knowledge are worth celebrating. So today, I won't have a guest. And guess what? I'm going to be the guest. So I thought I would share with you a little more about myself. And to be honest, this month flew by, and I did not reach out to potential guests early enough. So here I am. During this episode, I will tell you where I'm from, what decided me to pursue a career in marine sciences and policy, some of my research work, where am I at now, and some reflections on being disabled in STEM. So let's start from the beginning. Imagine a small white sandy beach nested between rock masses with scattered lichen and dead seagrass on them. The water is clear, it is summer, so the water is in the mid-70s. You can see rocks and seagrass beds under the surface, which help you decide on the route to follow to get to deeper waters. Are you going to swim between rocks and be careful to avoid sea urchins? Or will you swim over the seagrass bed and have your belly tickled by those long fronds? I'm so grateful that this was my summer playground as a child. I was born and raised in Corsica, a French island in the Mediterranean Sea. Its sister island is Italian and is Sardinia. My family house is in a small mountain village of about 400 people. My village is called Rutali. The Corsican way, you'll say Rutali. <laughs> about a half hour drive to the sea. My first love, though, was the woods, where I could hide in fern fields and climb oak trees with my cat. This is where I also did my first scientific experiments, such as burying in the ground mini jam, jar, jam jars to catch insects, collecting leaves and flowers to dry inventory them, and also raising tadpoles in a fish tank, to the joy of my parents. But as many others in the world, I must blame Jacques Cousteau. I would say Jacques Cousteau, <laughs> for developing my passion for the marine environment. I remember watching his TV documentaries, now really being immersed in his documentaries. It was such a good mix of biology, ethnography, and technology. So during my summers at the Little Pocket Beach, I spent most of my time snorkeling and freediving to explore life underwater. When I was 16, I did a summer job to pay for my scuba certification and did the same the following year. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. 
I always knew I wanted to use the ocean. Cousteau was an oceanographer, and I wanted to know what path to follow to become one. I started to do some research, but I was not sure where to go and what to study after high school. I remember my career counselor being clueless, and I was getting discouraged. It always seemed that I had to do several years of general biology before studying marine biology. This was not the path I wanted to follow. My parents did their best to help me, but no one in my family went to university before. But at the time, my mom was teaching at a vocational training institute, and she got to travel to university and school fairs. This is where she heard of this school in the south of France, where I could study oceanography. I could not only study what I love, but also go study abroad. I was stoked. After receiving my high school diploma, I moved one hour from Nice, not too far from Cannes, for two years, where I was able to start taking classes in marine biology and oceanography. I also took a lot of courses to improve my proficiency in English. After these two years on the French mainland, I went back to live on an island. But this time, like I mentioned earlier, you can, you know, I could go and study abroad. So this time, I went to the Pacific Ocean on Oahu, Hawaii, at Hawaii Pacific University. And I don't think my parents were super excited about that. But I had there some of my best memories. I discovered the Hawaiian culture and its fight for, you know, its survival and to fight for its language and traditions. I also tried surfing for the first time there. And I fell in love with plumaya trees and their heavenly scented flowers. These years were so challenging for me, though. I was living in a different country for the first time, and everything was different, literally. Not only the language, but the culture, the food, everything. And for the first time, I had to deal with also everything on my own, find a place to live, paying my bills, and dealing with university paperwork and visas. All of this in a language I did not master yet. And I relied a lot on my French friends and other international students. We created a supportive community being so far from our own. And little funny story, uh, I remember being in an, an elevator in a, in a hotel and I was trying to say something to someone. And, and yeah, people sometimes could not understand me. So I remember he was just talking louder. And I was like, no, just can you speak slower, not louder? So it was pretty interesting to just navigate everything um, around from studies to just live on my own. But what was really fantastic is that one semester, I was on a boat three times a week doing field work for my oceanography classes. And I knew that it was what I wanted to do, to be in the field as much as I could. However, my grades in lectures were not the best. And I thought I was not cut off for a career in oceanography. Because I was very interested in human environment interactions and how humans' impact could be mitigated, I decided to pursue a master in marine policy. I was accepted in the Marine Affairs program at the University of Rhode Island. And after a summer with my family in Corsica, a new visa application, and my parents wondering if I would ever come back to live in France, I landed in New England for the first time. So really different from Hawaii. My first winter there was pretty brutal. And living in Hawaii for two years definitely did not prepare me for this. A Canadian classmate gave me her spare pair of snow boots. I loved at first, but they became essential pretty quickly. Especially when you realize that the campus does not close on snow days. I think the campus exceptionally closed one day because we had more than two feet of snow. People in New England would relate to me. <laughs> I love living in Rhode Island with its small coastal towns and being able to experience the four seasons again. Except those winters are too long. I also love the program because it was pretty small and you get to know your cohort pretty well. At 22 years old, I was the youngest and the least experienced in the program. This was very intimidating. And I often wondered if I made the right decision and what I was doing here. I definitely had the imposter syndrome full force. And in case I wanted to move back to France, um, I was exploring master thesis topics that could help me find work in Europe more easily. 
because you know two years goes by quick and I had to decide on a research topic and this is how I then decided to look at the case of the International Mediterranean Sea Cetacean Sanctuary. It's a mouthful, but basically it's commonly called the Pelagos Sanctuary. And at that time, Dr. Tracy Dalton was my advisor. And for this thesis, I examined the governance and international cooperation arrangements used to implement the agreement that basically created this sanctuary. And to give you a little background about this sanctuary and how it was created, in 1993, the ministers of the environment of France and Italy and the minister of state of the Monaco Principality signed in Brussels the first formal international declaration for the institution of a Mediterranean sanctuary for marine mammals. And 10 years passed from the agreement's creation to its implementation in 2002. And this Pelago sanctuary basically extends over the waters of the northwest of Italy, the south of France, and the north of Sardinia. And Corsica is basically in the middle, so what a perfect, you know, topic for me to study. This region supports abundant marine life and is where all cetaceans regularly observed in the Mediterranean can be found, which include eight species. And during the summertime, this site is used as a feeding ground for fin whales and as a breeding and feeding ground for many pelagic fish, as well as almost the two-thirds of Mediterranean cetaceans in the area. However, there are significant threats to cetaceans' populations living in this area, especially those posed by bycatch in drift-net fishing activities, point source and non-point source pollution, high levels of maritime traffic, including ships transporting hazardous chemicals to and from the region's commercial harbors, and offshore boat races. Yes, it's, it's a pretty big deal there. And so you have so many ferries bringing tourists from the south of France to Corsica and Sardinia. In the Mediterranean, most coastal countries, and I think there are a total of 21 coastal countries, they only have a national jurisdiction of three nautical miles from the shore. For comparison, the United States have federal jurisdictions over waters within 200 nautical miles from the shore. But the Mediterranean is the semi-closed sea and is pretty small. Therefore, the Pelagos Sanctuary covers a portion of the Mediterranean high seas, so past the three nautical miles that are areas outside national jurisdiction. Therefore, the questions of how and what levels of enforcement and monitoring could be imposed on ships in this area and how to finance legal and management actions and scientific research were raised. And therefore, for my thesis, I examined how the three countries cooperated and what institutions were created regionally. So France, Monaco and Italy could protect their common regional heritage. And I defended my thesis the summer of 2006. After all this work, you know, researching this topic, um, I was so consumed, like, during research and getting ready to defend that I had basically no plans for what was coming next. But I was able to obtain an optional practical training authorization for one year. Uh, the short name for that is OPT, and it's basically a work visa for recent international, international graduate students. So I studied in Rhode Island and worked in a marine ecology lab on the University of Rhode Island Graduate School of Oceanography campus. So there I counted and identified benthic animals using a microscope, many hours um, watching, you know, working with a microscope, but I also did field work. Uh, especially I did field work for a couple of months for the Prudence Island National Estuarine Research Reserve. And that was really awesome because I was outside all the time. I did bird surveys, fish surveys in marshes, water quality monitoring, and also recorded human activity within the reserve. But one of my favorite tasks, believe it or not, was to do invasive green crab surveys. I became very good at catching and measuring them. I felt basically like a little ninja. You know, you lift up rocks and you do your quick ninja moves to catch as many as you can. And I love the month I worked for the reserve. It was highly satisfying to do outdoor work and to study animals within the environment. But 
all good things have an end. My work visa expired and I returned to Corsica. I think my parents finally had hopes that I would stay and work in France, if not Corsica. However, yes, there is always, let's say, a boy in the picture at some point. Um, I started dating an American boy a few months before coming home, and I was already thinking of how I could make it back to the U.S. to be with this cool guy. And this is when I decided to pursue a PhD. <laughs> I admit, this is not the best reason to pursue a PhD. So maybe don't follow my steps on that. Um, but my work at the Prudence Island Reserve also motivated me to go back to marine sciences instead of continuing my path in marine policy. So after researching different programs, contacting multiple advisors, and making sure that my studies were going to be fully funded, I landed at Washington State University on the Vancouver campus near Portland, Oregon. So from Hawaii, I jumped to the East Coast and West Coast, here I am. But Vancouver, Washington is not really a coastal town. Uh, but my advisor, Dr. Brian Tissot, was doing research in Hawaii and had connections in California and Oregon. And I remember talking to my boyfriend on the phone while walking in the forest near the campus. And pff, I was in awe. I love ferns and mosses. And here in the Pacific Northwest, they are everywhere. They're everywhere on trees, they're everywhere on the ground, and everything was so green. On top of this, in addition of being on this really cool campus, um, you know, being exciting and being a new lab, I got to be part of a research cruise right away, just a month after I started my semester. And for this cruise, my job was to know California waters, marine invertebrate species, well enough. So I had basically a binder when I had to that I was reading over and over. And to give you an example of some of those invertebrates, um, you know, there are sea cucumbers, sea stars, and corals. And I had to be able to identify them on video recordings made during submarine dives. So yeah, it was not only a research cruise on a boat, but the submarine was involved. And the day of the cruise arrived, I flew to Monterey Bay with my invertebrate ID binder, got picked up at the airport and dropped in Moss Landing. And I had to pitch myself. We had sea lions on the dock next to the boat. And for me, I was like, whoa, I mean, sea lions, I maybe saw them a few times at the aquarium, but I was so stoked. They were right there. We had sea life next to us, wildlife. But everyone else was pretty amused at my excitement because they were basically really bothered by the sea lion. Yeah, they can get smelly and super noisy. Um, but that was not it. Um, without having to leave the harbor, I saw pelicans for the first time and a sea otter munching on a crab. <laughs> well, what a start. And, um, and I don't think my 10 days on the boat could have been better. It was, you know, perfect weather, good food, good people, and a different wildlife show every day. Seabird, flocking, uh, seabird flocks flying back to the short sunset, dolphins swimming ahead of the boat, and curious humpback whales swimming around our boat. That was amazing. I don't know, I think we had maybe three of them just swimming around the boat, and they had sea lions with them too, and it's like they were playing together and just, you know, checking us up. And I think they were also really curious in this little submarine hanging off the side of the boat. And talking about submarine, I got to do three dives in a little yellow submarine. And yes, it's basically the submarine literally looked like the yellow submarine of the Beatles album cover. And basically, when you go into the submarine, only two people could fit inside it at a time. One scientist in a sitting position or laying on their belly so they can look out of the window at fishes and invertebrates. And the submarine driver um, who was sitting just higher up. So just the two of us underwater in this tiny submarine. And once underwater, we followed a predetermined trajectory or transect line within a marine protected area. And the whole time the dive was video recorded, 
And the observer was basically saying out loud what they were saying because the video recording is not sometimes not the best quality. So you have every time you see something, you have to say out loud what you think it is. And um, it's funny, you put me in a tiny elevator and I'm going to be claustrophobic, but within a tiny submarine, I felt at home. So this boat was really my happy place. Um, I loved it, but something was going on too. Is that at night, I couldn't sleep well. I had a lot of back pain, but luckily this pain dis was disappearing during the day. But see, it was, it was still really concerning because every night... Back pain, you know, at night, couldn't sleep well, and during the day I was fine. So I was like, something is going on. So at my return to shore, I went to see a doctor. And um, by the way, just a side note, I was not expecting that the world would be spinning after being on land. Um, that was insane. I felt like my sea legs could not walk me in a straight line for a little while. And I think it lasted almost 10 days. But yeah, was not seasick, but whew, I had a hard time being back on land. But anyways, went back to shore, saw the doctor, and, you know, he decided that I needed to do an x-ray. So I did an x-ray, and, you know, surely it takes a couple of days for you to have some, you know, to hear back from the doctor. But that same day, I received a voicemail from my doctor. So, you know, I was a little worried. I, I went outside the building to have a better cell signal and, and I call him back and um, and what was really I mean basically I had him on the phone and he said um, you have cancer and uh, and I didn't know what to say I I was shocked I I did not understand and and also I was more upset at him that than at the news itself I mean who could he announce this by phone to me instead of in person without asking why I was or was doing and knowing I was alone in Vancouver? Um, no close friends, no family, and my boyfriend was still on the East Coast. And who could he be so sure that it was cancer while I didn't do a biopsy yet? So that was... A lot to process, especially after I was finally thinking that, I mean, I came back from this amazing trip. I thought I had my stuff together, together that my boyfriend was going to meet me. I thought that I had this awesome start in life and I was so excited about. And and here's like this cold shower. Um, so I called my boyfriend right away. And, you know, it's so hard when you he was still in Rhode Island and and he did his best to support me by phone. But, but what do you say in this case? It's really hard. Um, and everything went really fast after this because I had more tests to do. So CAT scan, biopsy, and PET scan. Basically a PET scan. They scan your whole body to make sure that you don't have any other tumors or anything anywhere. And um, and also because it's such a, a big deal, I, I didn't want to say anything to my parents because what if it's not cancer? You know, what I'm going to make them worried and they were in Corsica, like so far from me. It's And um, so, yeah, so why worrying them if I didn't have cancer? But at some point, I, you know, I had to start telling them about my appointment. So I just told them that I had an appointment for a biopsy. Um, but, you know, I was telling them, you know, do not worry yet. We we don't have any results yet. We, we worry when we have them. And um, it happens that the results came the day of my little sister's birthday. And I couldn't call her that day. It was too much. Um, but I skyped with my parents and, and I announced the news. Uh, and I still remember their face on Skype. You know, everyone trying to hold it together, um, basically to protect each other. But it's... It's really, I don't know, it's really hard to process. And so the news was I had bone cancer uh, called osteosarcoma on two of my right ribs. Um, it was a very aggressive cancer, but luckily the PET scan didn't show any sign of tumor anywhere else. So that was the good news, you know, I always look at the, you know, silver lining. And uh, yes, yeah, so after the news, my... My parents, of course, were crushed. Um, 
I let them tell the news to my sister and um, and everything went really fast. My boyfriend came to visit uh, to make sure he could see me before, you know, I, I leave back to France. Uh, one of my best friends also from URI uh, came to visit and, and my mom, of course, you know, um, my mom was like, I'm getting in the first flight and she just to make sure that you know she can bring me back to France she arrived super determined just like you coming back with me um and uh so what happened I just you know packed my stuff uh I left some stuff with my roommate at the time because I was sure I will come back you know in no time and I wanted to pursue my studies um but yeah I flew back to France not sure what the future will hold for me um but I was confident that it could be the disease and I started to do some research about it and I had an awesome support group between my family, boyfriend and friends. And I was like, you know, I, I can do this. Um, but a few days after I landed in Paris where I would be treated, I started having difficulty walking and I could not do simple things. Like I could not urinate. And so I knew something was terribly wrong. Um, so I went to do another CAT scan in emergency and um, what happened was that my tumor I compressed my spinal cord and um, it's like so much things that happened during those months but I won't I won't spend too much time here describing this experience um, but the following month involved me losing the use of my legs doing many rounds of chemotherapy going through two surgeries one involving removing two half ribs three half vertebrae and back muscles, and uh, finishing with um, a month of radiation. And I had to deal with a lot of pain and uncertainties. Uh, but phew, my boyfriend and mom has been awesome. Like <laughs> my boyfriend, speaking of word of French, ended up uh, in my crazy family and also was sleeping on the hospital cot most of the time next to me. And my mom moved to Paris from Corsica to be near me. And was visiting me every day, so I, I can't express how, great, how grateful I am for them. Um, but interesting enough, like um, I ended up being more worried if I was going to walk again one day instead of being worried about me surviving the cancer. And having maybe this, you know, change in focus. I don't know. Maybe it was a good thing. Good thing that my worry switched because I was super determined to walk again. Uh, and I put all my strength and will toward that. And I think it helped uh, not be so worried about the cancer itself, even if the treatment was terrible. But but yeah, I was determined to walk again. And guess what? Hey, I did it. Um, I had to relearn how to walk. And that's crazy. You never expect your brain to forget how to walk. But I felt like a little, you know, like a little kid again. Uh, but after nine months in the hospital, I was able to walk short, short distances with crutches. And hey, big news. I think the most important news was that I was cancer-free. And so I went home to Corsica, uh, left Paris. And in Corsica, I did physical therapy almost every day for a year. And after my boyfriend defended his master thesis, he went back to Rhode Island he came back to Corsica to be with me and he proposed. Uh, so that was awesome. And we got married about a year after I left the hospital. And a wedding day uh, was such a beautiful celebration of life and love. And I still have goosebumps thinking about it. It, it was an awesome day. But after all that, I, I was like, okay, it's, it's start, things starting to, you know, come back together, but what I'm going to do with my life now? And what about my dream of a career in marine sciences? And you know what? Yes, I went back to Vancouver, Washington to finish my PhD. Um, it was basically the only thing I, I could hang on to. Um, it was kind of this project that I was like, okay, I, I'll finish it. I'll try to continue my life as it was before. Um, but a lot of things changed. I couldn't do field work as I wanted. Um, and I had to find, to make it work for me. I had to find new ways uh, 
to adapt and I also had to manage my pain, my fatigue, depression and anxiety. And all of this in an academic system that does not really provide the support and accommodations you need or they do so in a limited way and and is often expected of you to ask for assistance if you need it or to come prepared to adapt to a system, to the system on your own. And for me at the time, I don't know if it was, you know, maybe pride or or something else, you know, you, you want to do like the others. Um, at that time, I just wanted to be my old self. And, and I wanted to, and I was pushing through fatigue and pain because I wanted to do the work like everyone else was doing. And I wanted to prove to myself and others that my diminished body did not mean that I was not smart enough to be here. So I think I was also hard on myself and and I think I was perceiving accommodations to my needs more like as favors and uh, and I didn't want to be seen as a burden and phew, how wrong how wrong I was thinking about that. Um, I'm realizing this now and and I'm much better now at accepting who I became. And I am grateful and proud of his beaten body that went through so much. So, yeah, it was tough times. But let's talk now a little more about the fun stuff. My dissertation research. (laughs) Okay, I'm slightly sarcastic because I don't think that the words dissertation and fun are often the same sentence. So fun stuff, I don't know, let's say really interesting stuff. And, you know, research has its up, you know, and down. So two years and another major surgery since my return to the United States, I had the opportunity to go to the north coast of California to be part of a project led by Humboldt State University and EcoTrust. And guess what? I was going to do some field work again, but not the kind I was used to. This time, I was going to survey commercial fishermen across three counties, Del Norte, Humboldt, and Mendocino, to ask about their livelihood and perceptions toward a recently established network of marine protected areas. So different, I was not going to catch, you know, little green crabs. I was going to talk to fishermen, so very different. And I'm going to give you now a little of background about this, you know, the creation of those marine protected areas in California. So in 1989, California state passed the Marine Life Protection Act. And this act required the California Department of Fish and Wildlife to redesign its system of marine protected areas, and I will use the term NPAs uh, from now on, to increase its coherence and effectiveness at protecting the state's marine life, habitats, and ecosystems. So basically, in order to put these, you know, to create these MPAs, uh, the California coast, because it's huge, was divided into four study regions, the central coast, north central coast, south coast, and north coast. And I told them in this order because it's like in the way uh, they got implemented, the MPAs in each of those regions. And within each region, a public MPA planning process was conducted. And that happened between 2006 and 2011. And the North Coast uh, basically was the last place uh, where MPAs were created. And in 2012, 19 MPAs were established along the North Coast of California, according to this design process. And you have two main types of MPAs that were created. Six state marine reserves. So basically in marine reserves, um, you have any damage or take of all marine resources are prohibited and 13 state marine conservation areas. There, it's a little different because they may allow some recreational and or commercial take of marine, of marine resources. So in summer 2014, I moved to the North Coast for three months, each month in a different fishing town. Every day I was working the fishing docks to introduce myself to fishermen and ask them if they were willing to take our survey. The survey had a lot of questions, ranging from basic demographic ones, others focused on the perceived effects of MPAs on their fisheries and livelihood, and also their level of trust towards some state, local, and nonprofit organizations. And to a mapping exercise where fishermen showed where they fished, 
where they fished for, what specific species, and how valuable these fishing grounds were. We also conducted focus groups in each fishing town. And except for a few fishermen that were not super welcoming, let's say, um, all the other fishermen I talked with were very respectful and generous with their time. Uh, yes, they could be highly vocal um, about, you know, how they thought about what they thought about the, the NPAs and how they've been affected, but still they were very respectful and they have such a wealth of knowledge and as well as fascinating and, and scary fishing stories. So it was great talking with them. And I used some of the data I collected uh, with these surveys for my dissertation. And I worked closely with one of the Humboldt State University faculty staff, uh, Dr. Laurie Richmond. I went back to Washington State, to Vancouver, where I did some data analysis. And um, what came out of that was that most fish commercial fishermen surveyed thought that NPAs were negatively affecting them. The main negative effects perceived from MPS was the loss of fishing grounds, which, you know, was expected. But most fishermen also did not believe that the new closures will help in improving the health of natural resources. However, um, we observed that perceptions of these effects greatly varied between fisheries and ports. So, for example, um, the effects perceived by, let's say, rockfish fishermen were different from the one perceived by crab fishermen. And also you had differences between ports because some fishing ports, some of them, for example, have a lot of crab fishermen and others, let's say, are going to have maybe more salmon fishermen. And also fishermen basically are often fishing for different fisheries. So it's kind of like, you know, pretty complex, but... Um, Still, these results were pointing to the importance to consider management effects at the local and users group's level in order to increase equity, acceptance, success, and long-term existence of MPAs. What we found as well is that most fishermen also considered the MPAs planning process high in conflict. They were dissatisfied with it and distrusted it. Others suggested that the planning process lacked legitimacy in the eye of fishermen due to several reasons. Outsiders leading the process, funding coming from environmental NGOs, and lack of familiarity and trust towards some agencies. Therefore, um, one of our conclusions was, was that a continuous involvement of local leaders is needed to advance marine conservation initiatives and in order to harness support for social acceptance of such conservation initiatives, such as MPAs. And in addition, stakeholders such as fishermen need to be part of the MPA planning process, not only as participants, but also as collaborators. I went back to the north coast of California in 2016 to interview people who were part of the regional stakeholder group that had for all to submit competing proposals of where the MPAs would be located and what they would look like. And those proposals basically had to be then reviewed and potentially merged into one by a Blue Ribbon Task Force and a Science Advisory Team. And the North Coast was the only region where the regional stakeholder group reached a consensus on a second proposal for the location and design of MPAs. So that was really different from the other regions where basically the stakeholder group proposed different proposals. Some more, some were like more like for bigger MPAs, uh, you know, in the specific areas and others, if it was, you know, fishermen, they're like, no, we would like more smaller MPAs. And at the end, these were kind of like mixed up to make sure to find kind of like a kind of like a win-win situation. But in this case, this win-win situation, or like, let's say, to limit the damages, like the stakeholder said, was decided by the stakeholders themselves and not an external um, entities. And uh, so what I wanted to do with my research was um, to understand the circumstances that led to this unified proposal on the North Coast. And this proposal was ultimately accepted and implemented with few modifications. So that was really a success. And um, what I found out was that the unified proposal um, was mostly the product of the stakeholders' common vision 
to have more power and ownership in the process. They wanted to have more control. And also it was due to an improved community's collaborative capacity because a lot of work was done ahead by the community itself to meet and talk about this process. It's also on the North Coast, a really small community. So the community size had a, was a factor in it as well. Um, as well as the composition and size of the regional stakeholder group. This regional stakeholder group was much smaller than the ones in the other regions. But overall, this study demonstrated the importance of stakeholder involvement, power sharing, and ownership when developing strategies centered around the research, planning, and management of MPAs. So all that was my research. And uh, finally, after long years of researching, analyzing, writing, <laughs> uh, and also being on, at the same time um, teaching assistant. So I was working as a teaching assistant for 20 hours a week at the time. So finally, in September 2018, I successfully defended my dissertation. But no time for a big break because um, three weeks after, I was studying my Washington C. Grant Hirschman Fellowship with Washington State Department of Ecology. So whew, jumping from one thing to the other, but this time was really different because I was leaving academia and I was going to see what it, how it works to, to be at a state agency. And that was so one of my you know, decision to leave academia. I, I didn't think I was, it was going to be was going to be a good fit uh, career path for me. So I decided to do a fellowship where I can learn more about um, you know, the work at state agencies or NGOs and other groups. And this time, um, the work I was doing was not treated at all to marine protected areas. Um, the focus of my work this time had to be on coastal hazards. And yeah, when you're placed in those different state agencies or NGOs when you're a fellow, uh, they basically got funding for different projects. And at this time, uh, for the Department of Ecology, it was uh, funding related to coastal resilience to, um, for communities. And the purpose of my work was um, to explore existing efforts by state agencies in Washington to incorporate sea level rise considerations into state capital funding guidelines and projects. Basically, state capital grant programs fund a range of activities along the coast, and including critical facilities and infrastructure construction, toxic cleanup of hazardous sites, habitat restoration and protection, recreation opportunities, and many other important community assets. And these important activities are located in areas that are vulnerable to the impacts of changing climate conditions and Coastal infrastructure is likely to experience more problems as sea level rise, including saltwater intrusion, corrosion, flooding, and sedimentation. And the goal of this study was to um, identify successes, challenges, needs, and opportunities on how to incorporate sea level rise considerations into state capital funding guidelines and projects. So that was a really inter interesting work and ended up being uh, a report uh, published by the Department of Ecology, I think just last year. And during my fellowship, I also collected the restructuring and development of the Washington Coastal Hazards Resilience Network website, for short, uh, we call it churn. And to work on this website, uh, I was working closely with Washington Sea Grant and the Climate Impacts Group at University of Washington. And it was really fun, you know, uh, I learned how to use WordPress, created a website, and uh, the website purpose um, basically is to increase Washingtonians' accessibility to policy, funding, scientific resources, and educational materials on coastal hazards. So it's a really good resource, and I strongly suggest you to check out this resource. A year went by really fast when you do all this cool stuff. And at the end of my one-year fellowship, I needed a little breather, though, because, you know, PhD, then fellowship. So I escaped to Corsica to see my family for a month. 
And uh, that was November 2019. And uh, this ended up being a very good timing as COVID-19 changed our lives a couple of months after. However, being unemployed during COVID-19 was not the best timing, though. (laughs) There were very few jobs to apply to. um, But, you know, opportunities showed up and... I ended up working as an intern for the American Shoreline Podcast Network. And here I am, (laughs) still here. And uh, shortly after, I applied to and was awarded a resilience fellowship with Oregon Sea Grant. So I was super excited after Washington Sea Grant, Oregon Sea Grant, and I love working for Sea Grant. So I was really excited to stay in the Sea Grant family. And um, so what I'm doing now is basically uh, for my fellowship, I work with staff at Oregon Sea Grant and other partners to increase the resilience of Oregon communities to the impact of climate change and coastal natural hazards. And um, and yeah, it was not really specific earlier, but coastal hazards are, you know, coastal erosion, uh, landslide, flooding, but also more like uh, acute hazards such as uh, tsunamis. And I've been conducting engagement and outreach to local stakeholders to better understand and assess impacts of climate change and coastal hazards, and also to learn how to mitigate the impacts of hazards through improved practices and policies. So it means I've been reaching out to basically multiple state staff all over Oregon, NGOs, but also local communities, local Um, city emergency planners, county emergency planners. I'm trying to reach out also to the Coastal Tribe. Uh, I think so far I've been able to be in contact with, I don't know, short of maybe 100 people. So I've been spending a lot of time on meetings online, but it's always exciting to meet new people and to learn what people are doing related to coastal hazards. And right now uh, I'm also uh, creating an ArcGIS story map that will compile and display um, case studies on a map. And um, basically those case studies are focusing on alternatives to traditional shoreline armoring and approaches to acute and chronic coastal hazards. And I'm going to tell you briefly the difference between those two kinds of hazards. Chronic hazards, uh, the one that we can see clear evidence of along the shore, such as, you know, beach, dune, bluff erosion, landslides, and flooding of, you know, low-lying lands, especially during major storms and king tides. But the damage they cause is usually gradual and cumulative. While, on the other end, acute hazards, they occur over large, larger geographic areas and time frames as well. And, for example, uh, those are earthquakes and tsunamis. They are not frequent, frequent, but they have catastrophic damages. And here on the Oregon coast, we are kind of overdue for like uh, a mega earthquake. Mega earthquake is a magnitude of, you know, 9.1 or more. The last one was uh, in the 1700. And they occur, those mega earthquake, every 300 to 500 years. So, yes, we the big one is going to be there at some point. Uh, so we're trying, like Oregon and also Washington, have been doing a lot of efforts related to tsunami and earthquake preparedness. And I recently got my go bag. So I'm getting ready myself. Um, and to give you a talk or so about this map that is going to show case studies on alternatives to traditional shoreline armoring. So briefly, those alternatives, what are they? Uh, so shoreline, traditional shoreline armoring is, for example, repraps and seawalls. And alternatives to those would be uh, dune and estuary restoration or dynamic revetments that are basically kind of like trying to recreate um, natural-looking cobalt beaches to help mitigate erosion. And another project I'm working on also involves conducting a needs assessment for the lodging industry along the Oregon coast, so Oregon Seagrant can assist with hotel staff training needs, uh, including tsunami preparedness. 
because during the summer, uh, the coast is basically slammed. We have so many visitors from, you know, around the States, but also the US and the world. And there are pretty small communities and the risk, you know, can be pretty high related to coastal hazards, such as, you know, the tsunami. So we're trying to um, make sure people on the ground uh, are prepared and know where to go for evacuation routes so they can help uh, others. And yeah, my fellowship ends in a couple of months and um, time is flying by. I cannot believe we, it's almost, you know, the end of it. And um, I will see what opportunity will present itself next. Um, I don't know yet. I started, you know, to apply for jobs, but um, I would like to continue to work at the intersection of science, policy and society. Uh, that's why I like, I like Seagrant so much. Uh, and because it's where I would like to help, you know, prioritizing, um, you know, taking measures to ensure the work that I produce results in practical, equitable and sustainable outcomes for end users and especially, uh, you know, local communities or vulnerable communities. I also want to continue to be involved in committees aiming to improve diversity, inclusion, equity and justice at the workplace in the work that is produced and in working relationships that are developed. Thank you for listening to this episode. <laughs> I talked, I'm not used to talk about myself so in so much detail and especially in a podcast. And maybe it got a little more personal than I thought it would be. But um, um, I think it also shows that we all have a story that made us, you know, who we are today. And I think it made me a better social scientist as well because you know maybe it increased a little more like you know my empathy as well because of some of my life experiences and um yeah i just want also to say that it is rare to follow a linear path to a career in sciences and engineering and you can see my path is definitely not linear you also learn what you like what you don't like and um but whatever your story or path is I would say keep your eyes open for opportunities and work that, you know, that show up your way and also follow your heart. And if you don't find those opportunities um, that, you know, meet your needs, uh, try to create them. And uh, also do not shy away from asking for help. Be curious, work hard, but play harder. And uh, most of all, um, take care of yourself. Thank you.